Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of 100 Fathoms Under by John Blaine. Volume 7. Chapter 17. Recapture of the Tarpon. Rick jerked the steel tent stake from his belt and lifted it to throw, but another was there before him. There was a dull thud as a stake crashed down on the sailor's head and arms caught him as he fell. Scotty stepped out of the pilot house. Let's go. He called softly, already moving. It had taken only a fraction of a second. Hartson Brandt was not yet past the galley door. Rick and Scotty ran after him, noiseless in their bare feet. As they reached the afterdeck, Zircon came around the other side, a huge, terrible figure of vengeance, with tent stake held high. The enemy was clustered at the after rail, the submobile shielding the swimmers from them. As the boarders rounded the shining undersea craft, Rick saw Turk Mullane, his back to them, leaning on the rail. Looks like the natives got to playing with matches, Turk said. He laughed, then sensing something, he whirled. Not the natives, Rick said, and his tent stake was already swishing down in a vicious arc. His hand stung as the weapon caught the captain squarely on the forehead. Turk's mouth opened and his eyes glazed over. He had a look of astonishment on his swarthy face as he slumped to the deck. Out of the corner of his eye, Rick saw one of the sailors go down as his father swung and saw Zircon's stake raised over Digger's head. Then the other sailor was leaping for him. Rick jumped back, but the slippery footing betrayed him. He fell, sailor on top of him. The hand with the tent stake was free. Rick reversed ends and pushed himself with all his strength just as a fist caught him behind the ear. The sailor gave a moan and drew away for a second. Rick writhed free and began to swing, but it wasn't necessary. The sailor was lifted bodily away from him. Hobart Zircon whirled him high overhead and then threw him into the side of the submobile. He slid into a limp heap to the deck. Rick jumped to his feet and took in the situation at a glance. Turk, the two sailors, and Digger Sears were sprawled on the deck. The mate had a cut on his temple, but he was still breathing. Hartson Brandt and Hobart Zircon were running to help Scotty, who was locked with Hashimo on the deck. Rick hurried to help him too, his tent stake ready. But Scotty gasped, Keep out of this! The two scientists stopped, and Rick tucked the tent stake back into his belt. The Japanese stowaway had thrown Scotty the night they had discovered him. Then during the mutiny he had acquired Scotty's beloved rifle and he had kicked him. Rick knew that Scotty had been fuming inside, even though his friend hadn't said much. Scotty wouldn't want any help in taking care of the Japanese. The two on the deck were tied up in a knot, and Hashimo had Scotty in a punishing hold, but Scotty gave a sudden heave 
bringing his open hand down sharply on the side of his enemy's neck. Hashimo flinched, and Scotty pulled free. In an instant, they were on their feet, crouched low, facing each other. They were bent almost double at the waist, arms hanging loose, slightly bent at the elbows. They circled like two wary cats. Rick understood, although he had never seen anything like this before. This was judo, the so-called gentle art, the most brutal scientific method of fighting in the world. The Japanese man lunged suddenly, face contorted. Scotty's arm flashed up, and the side of his hand caught Hashimo under the nose. Hashimo shook his head and started to back up. Then with amazing speed, he threw his whole body forward, hands outstretched. He caught Scotty, and the weight of his body shifted. Scotty went into the air, arcing backward. By some miracle of agility, he made a cat-like twist and landed on his feet, his knees bending for an instant. Then they straightened out like steel springs as Scotty jumped forward. Hashimo sprang to meet the charge, hands ready to break a judo hold. But Scotty surprised him. A fist brushed aside Hashimo's defense like a battering ram, and the other fist described a short arc that ended flush against the broken nose. The Japanese man rocked backwards with a cry of pain. Then his body curved in midair as he jumped feet first. Scotty leaped aside, his hand chopped down. Hashimo crashed to the deck. Scotty waited until his adversary was on his feet again. Then he stepped in swinging. Hashimo was no mean boxer. He tried hard and he landed blows on Scotty's face and body with the side of his open hand, hardened in the Japanese fashion by breaking boards. But for every blow he sent home, he took three or four. Both his eyes were black and his cheek was bleeding. He staggered and his guard dropped. Scotty smashed home a short chop with all of his powerful shoulder behind it. Hashimo's knees came unhinged. They buckled and he swayed. Then he fell face down on the deck and didn't stir again. Rick suddenly realized where they were and why. Holy smoke! There's nobody steering the boat! He sprinted for the pilot house just as the sailor Scotty had knocked out began to stir. There wasn't time to be merciful. Rick tapped the sailor with his tent stake hard. The sailor went back to sleep again. The wheel was swinging free. Rick took it, noting that there was still a dim glow from the gasoline fire ashore. He took his bearings on that and straightened the ship out. Then he found the button for the air horn and pushed it. Three short blasts and a long one. That was Morse code. V for victory. Gordon Chato would hear it and know. He locked the wheel in place, then ran back to see what was going on. The others had cut up lengths of rope and were just finishing, tying up the late mutineers. Seeing that everything was under control, he ran back to the pilot house. Scotty joined him in a moment and he was grinning. Now I can look at Chowden in the face again, Scotty said with satisfaction. Rick laughed. We all can. We took them completely by surprise. Good thing, too, Scotty said. He rubbed a bruise on his cheek. Our oriental pal there was no softy. For a while, I thought he was going to open me up like a melon. He didn't have a chance. You had him on the run from the time you started. Hartson Brandt came over into the pilot house. Doing all right, Rick? I wonder if we dare run the reef passage at night. Rick looked out at the rain-swept sea. I don't think so, Dad. It'd be better to take a small boat in for the others. You're right, the scientist agreed. Want to come with me, Scotty? 
Rick can stay at the wheel while Hobart keeps an eye on our friends. He smiled. Incidentally, that was an excellent demonstration you put on. Congratulations. Scotty turned red. Thank you, sir. Shouldn't we get started right away? The others will be anxious to know what happened. Certainly. Let's go. Hartzenbrandt agreed. A cool, sunny morning dawned on a strange site. All hands aboard the trawler were eating breakfast, with the exception of Gordon, who was taking his turn at the wheel, and Otera, who was asleep in a bunk. Rick, Scotty, Chada, Zircon, and Mr. Brandt were eating on the hatch cover, and complimenting Scotty on his surprising ability as a cooker of ham and eggs. Rick came in for his share of praise as a coffee maker. However, the Spindrift party dined with two pistols very prominent as table centerpieces, and Scotty's rifle leaning against his leg. The prisoners were eating, but not in such comfort. They were backed up to the after rail, seated on the deck. Their hands were free to permit them to eat, but nooses around their necks secured them to the top of the rail. This was Chada's development. The nooses were not tight enough to hurt or to interfere with eating, and they were all connected by a trip wire, which in turn was connected to a suspended small anchor. The ingenious arrangement made it safe to untie the prisoners' hands. If they tried to move more than a few inches, the nooses would tighten. If they tried to untie themselves, the tugs necessary to undo the tight knots would trip the anchor and leave the lot of them strangling until somebody rescued them. Over breakfast coffee, Hartson Brandt called a council of war. In spite of our difficulties, I am not disposed to call the expedition off. We're safe from the natives while we're aboard the ship, and we have enough hands to continue our dives. All of us have operated boats before, and if we remember this is only a larger version, we'll have no difficulty. Gordon will be captain since he can navigate. We'll all bear a hand with the engines if they need attention. How about our prisoners? There's no jail aboard. We can't keep them tied up all the time. I think I have an answer to that, too, Hartson Brandt said. He pointed to where little Quangara thrust out of the sea. Like Crusoe Robin, Chada said. We maroon them. I suggest that we leave them there when we're through diving, Zircon stated. We can make our way back to Guam, which is the closest Navy base, and tell our tale to the Commandant. I'm sure the Navy will be glad to send a destroyer to take them off. Rick nodded, he asked. But are we just going to make all our dives at the temple? The others laughed. Have you got the treasure bug, Rick? His father smiled. Turk has some very interesting charts and diagrams that I want to study. Yes, I think we might take a look at the treasure ship later today. Unless somebody disagrees, of course. No one did. Chapter 18. The Treasure Ship Rick was getting nervous. The submobile had been on the bottom an awfully long time and standing in the pilot house, he couldn't keep track of what was going on. Through the window, he could see the rocky pile that was little Quangara. There were a few palms around the shore, but it was largely rock. A thread of smoke wound up through the feathery palm tops, and he knew that Turk and company had a fire going, probably to cook their rations. The sound of the winch signaled the rise of the submobile, and Rick heaved a sigh of relief. At least he didn't have to worry any more about his father and Gordon. But what had they found on the bottom? 
He waited until he heard the submobile swing on board and then turned to the trawler past little Quangara and headed her out into open sea. He locked the wheel in position and throttled down. He hurried back to see what had happened. The others were already gathered around the charts spreading out on the hatch, and Hartson Brent was explaining what they had found. The ship is on her starboard side, pretty much intact except for the torpedo holes. Now, according to Turk's diagram of the superstructure, the treasure room is also on the starboard side, behind a gun turret. He made a quick sketch of the Asamo's position. She was on her side, resting at about a 30-degree angle. The treasure room was on the under part of the superstructure. Turk wanted information on setting explosive charges, Gordon said. He must have come to the same conclusion we did. The only chance of getting the treasure out is to plant charges under the superstructure and blow the walls out. Then if we're lucky, the treasure chest will fall clear and we can pick them up. But how are you going to get under to plant the charges? Scotty objected. Mr. Brandt smiled mirthlessly. That, Scotty, is the problem. There's room enough for the submobile to go in, but we mustn't forget that our lives depend on the cable. To get under the superstructure, the cable would have to make a sharp turn, resting against the edge of the deck. The question is, is it worth the risk? If the cable got fouled, then... Rick didn't complete the thought. Harson Brandt walked to the rail and stared out over the side. Rick watched him, knowing that it was a difficult decision to make. His father had never shied away from risks, but he had always told Rick, before you take a risk... Always do a little figuring. It is a result worth the hazard. The others were watching Mr. Brandt, too, waiting for him to decide. Presently, the scientist turned from the rail and motioned for them to gather around him. As a research scientist, I shouldn't be influenced by any consideration of money, but I must admit that I am. Let's be practical. You know there is never enough money for scientific research, our own treasury is getting low since we turn our experimental results over to the public without profit. And we have a number of expensive projects coming up. The Pacific Ethnographic Society is in a similar position. It is a point to consider, Zircon agreed. Since we never make money from our developments, we must get capital from some source. Do you think it's worth the risk, Hartson? We'll eliminate as much of the risk as possible, Hobart, by a careful survey of the ship. Then we'll make one trial effort. If the risk is still too great, we'll abandon the project. Rick looked at his watch. There's time for another long dive today, Dad. Harson Brandt nodded. We'll go together, Rick. The ship stirred with activity. The oxygen bottles were replaced with full ones, giving a ten-hour supply. The cable connections were examined carefully. Then Rick aided his father in securing the explosive charges. There were two of them to be taken down, one for each salvage arm. From the outside, they looked like metal boxes covered with hooks, but inside was a complicated arrangement that included batteries and electronic equipment for translating the sound impulses into the electric current that would explode the charge. As they finished locking the charges into the arm clamps, Hobart Zircon came aft. We're standing 15 feet away from the top of the ship, centered on the superstructure as nearly as I can gauge it. Good. Hartson Brandt folded the ship diagrams under his arm. 
Are you ready, Rick? They got in, tested equipment and phones, and then settled themselves for the ride down. At 700 feet, the submobile came to a stop. Rick switched on the sonoscope and the searchlight, but nothing showed either on the screen or through the observation port. The submobile began to descend again, slowly and smoothly. Scotty was operating the winch. Chada was working furiously with the clamps, aided now and then by Zircon, who had an extension line on his phone set. A faint signal appeared on the sonoscope screen. Rick tried to focus, but the outline was too vague. He leaned over and looked through the observation port and saw why. They were near the big radar antenna on the ship's tallest mast. The outlines of the thin metal pieces were too slender to register well. Let's check our position, Harson Brandt said. He opened the charts he had brought. One was a side view of the ship, the other a sketch of the treasure room, showing four large trunks and a safe. He marked their position off the tip of the forward mast and then phoned to the deck. Take us aft about 15 feet. No, don't take us up. We're clear of the ship. It was a good 15 minutes before the submobile stopped swaying on its cable. Then Rick looked at the sonoscope screen and tried to focus. We're too high. We need to go down 10 feet. Mr. Brandt gave the order and the submobile descended. The sonoscope focused on a shelf of solid metal that ended halfway down the screen. Under the shelf, the screen went out of focus, showing that the space went far back. We're at the top edge of the superstructure, Mr. Brandt said. I'll move closer and you can see through the observation port. Rick tried to pierce the gloom past the searchlight beam as the submobile swung in, driven by the after propeller. He began to make out details. The solid color on the sonoscope was the upper deck. The sharp tilt of the deck made it appear that the submobile was suspended, nose down in space, pointing at the roof edge of a high building. Close enough, he called. Now what? Let's go down ten feet. Slowly, Hartzenbrandt ordered. The picture on the screen changed, and Rick was suddenly looking at three great pipes that thrust up into the bottom edge of the sonoscope. Hartzenbrandt ordered another ten feet of depth, and the picture became clear. They were guns, not pipes. The position was confusing since the ship was on its side. Rick's view was the same as if he had been hanging head down, looking at the top of the gun turret. We're right where we want to be, Hartson Brandt said. Do some figuring, Rick. The treasure room is right above those guns. If we blast it open, what happens? Well, the turret has a sharp slant. If the treasure chests drop onto it, they'll slide off, probably, and either get caught on the gun barrels or slide to the bottom. Harson Brandt nodded agreement. In either case, we could pick them up. Now, what could the cable catch on? Rick looked through the observation port. I can't see anything. We should go back up until we're above the ship. Then we can watch everything we pass on the way down. I agree. Harson Brandt ordered, Take us up to 700 and hold. Rick grinned. He knew his father was a step ahead of him all the way, but the scientist was letting him do the talking and making him puzzle out the problem as they went. Once, back at 700, they started to descend again. 
As they went, Hartz and Brandt kept the side propellers going, swinging the nose from side to side. There were no major obstructions that might catch the cable. They reached the lower edge of the deck, and the submobile halted at an order to the trawler. Well, do we try it? Hartz and Brandt asked calmly. Rick looked at the sonoscope screen and gave a little shiver. They had to use full propeller power to swing like a yo-yo at the end of its string. Figuring their arc so that it would miss the turret, ending up at the angle where the deck of the ship met the wall of the superstructure, they would have to drive in about 25 feet from freedom, dragging their cable against the edge of the roof as they went. They were more than 100 fathoms down, with tremendous pressure on them. The smallest break in the submobile's armor would... Let's give it a whirl, Rick said. His voice surprised him by being steady. Hartson Brandt spoke crisp orders into the phone. We're going in, gentlemen. Give us cable very slowly and be ready for anything I might say. Zircon's voice was tense in the earphones. Right. We're on our toes. Ten feet, the scientist ordered. Then as the submobile began to sink, he threw power into the aft propeller. Rick was holding the sonoscope, focusing knobs so tightly that his hands shook. Suddenly a rasping screech sent an icy wave through him. The cable was scraping on the edge of the roof. The submobile came to a halt, shuddering under the propeller drive. The rasping stopped. Another ten feet, Hartson Brandt ordered. We're under the overhang. Rick focused on the angle where the deck met the wall. Then he looked out through the observation port. The searchlight showed the angle dimly. They had a distance to go. The submobile began to move again. Watch upward, Hartson Brandt said. Get forward as far as you can. Look for a porthole. Rick did and saw they were only a few feet under the wall. The strain on the cable must have been tremendous. It ran down from the ship, turned the corner at a sharp angle. If it broke, but it wouldn't. It would take more than they were giving it. It had been specially made. It wouldn't break, he hoped. He saw a circle in the smooth surface overhead and called, Porthole! How far are we from the deck? He sighted. Close enough. Hold it, Dad. Hold us right here. The deck angle was only about six feet away. Hartz and Brandt had the most difficult task, holding the shuddering submobile in position with just the right amount of power to the aft propeller. Rick pressed his face against the observation port and looked for a break in the smooth deck, or in the wall. In a moment he saw just the thing, a cleat on the deck at just the right angle. He was cool as an ice cube now. He took the pistol grip that controlled the left extension arm and moved it forward, the explosive charge at its tip. Now to engage a hook on the deck cleat. The explosive charge blocked his view. He moved it into place until he felt the electric motor change tone as it pushed the charge against the deck. Then he lifted it and let it slide down. It stopped sliding. He put pressure downward on the extension arm and the motor whined again. It was caught. He released the arm clamp, and the explosive charge hung secure on the cleat. Hartson Brandt gave an audible sigh. 
Wipe your forehead, Rick. You're melting. Rick mopped his face. He hadn't even noticed the sweat running off his nose. Dad, we'll have to back up about three feet. Right, son. Here we go. Hartson Brandt slowed the aft propeller a little at a time, and the submobile swung slightly down away from the overhead wall and back just enough. Rick took the control for the extension arm he had just used to place the charge. He moved it up and out, right at the black circle of the porthole. It reached it and kept going. The blackness was only water. He had been afraid it was a steel covering. It was easy after that. He retracted the left arm and took control of the right one, which held the second charge. It was only a matter of pushing the charge through the open port and releasing it. He pushed the arm far enough through the porthole so that the charge wouldn't drop out again. He released the clamp, withdrew the arm slowly. Then he gave a sigh of relief. The charge was in the room. Now, if they could only get safely out again. That was Hearts and Brand's problem. If he asked for too much cable, they would swing down and strike the turret. He slowed the aft propeller, letting the submobile drift down and back a few feet. Then he sped the motor up again and held it there. Take up five feet of slack, he ordered. No more. The cable rasped, sending a shiver through Rick again. It was horribly loud in the submobile. The processors repeated twice, three times. And the last time they hung free again, the edge of the upper deck visible in the screen. Father and son shook hands solemnly and grinned their relief. Take us up, Hartson Brandt ordered. The charges are in place. Chapter 19 The Last Dive Willing hands helped Rick and Hartson Brandt to the deck. Otera, a bandage startlingly white against the inky black of his hair, arrived in person to pour fresh coffee. They sat down on the hatch, weaker than they had realized from the strain of the trip, and described the adventure in detail. Scotty put his arm around Rick's shoulder. Old son, when I saw the cable vibrate, I almost passed out. I thought your goose was cooked for sure. I thought so too. Rick grinned. Any gray hair on my head? Chata's brown skin was still unnaturally white. In all my life, I have never been so frightened, I think. Oh, unhappy day. Now these good friends become statistics for the New World Almanac. If the explosive charges fail to do the job, Zircon bellowed, I say to toff it with the treasure. Let it stay on the bottom. Amen to that. Gordon said. When do we explode the charges? Hartson Brandt finished his coffee and rose. Right now. Gordon went back to the pilot house and swung the trawler around, heading once more for Little Quangara. Just off the tip, a thousand yards away from the sunken Asamo, he stopped the ship. Hobart Zircon reconnected the sound gear. Here she goes, the big scientist shouted. He threw the switch that sent forth the sound impulses. There was silence as they waited, then the trawler shuddered. Over the Asamo, huge bubbles broke the surface. Now, Hartson Brandt said, smiling, we run for the open sea to spend the night, since we don't dare anchor off either of these islands, thanks to our enemies. 
During the night, the turmoil down below will settle, and tomorrow, well, we'll just have to go down and see what happened. It was still dark when Rick awoke. In spite of a small amount of sleep, he had taken his two-hour watch at midnight. The excitement of the treasure hunt had wakened him before dawn. Scotty was on watch, but Chada was in his bunk. Are you awake too? Chada asked. Yeah, Rick said. Go back to sleep. It's the middle of the night. Look who talks. Go back to sleep yourself. I can't. Let's go topside. It's almost time to get up anyway. Hartson Brandt was having coffee in the galley. He looked at them in surprise and then laughed. You two got the get-up urge too, I see. Well, you're the last. Gordon and Zircon are in the pilot house with Scotty. Otera is the only sleepyhead. They had a quick breakfast, then went forward. To the east, a thin sliver of salmon-pink sky heralded the dawn. Scotty, Zircon, and Gordon were lazily watching it. Who goes down? Chada asked. Gordon and I reached a decision by the unscientific method of flipping a coin. He won. Scotty will go with him. Rick felt a stir of disappointment. He'd hoped to go himself. Gordon saw his disgruntled expression. You stay on deck, Rick, and your father, too. We're splitting the wrists as evenly as possible. Hobart and Chada will make the second dive of the day. If there's a third, you could go. It was the fairest way, of course, but Rick would have liked to continue the work that they had started yesterday. They chatted until daylight had spread in a wide fan over the eastern half of the sky. Then Scotty swung the trawler around and headed back to Quangara. The others went aft and began getting the submobile ready. It was full daylight before they were finished. Hobart Zircon manned the sound gear and located them as close to yesterday's position as possible calling out the directions to Gordon, who had taken the wheel. When the trawler finally rode over the selected spot, Zircon took the wheel, while Hartson Brandt handled the winch. Rick put on the earphones, and Chada stood by the clamp cable. The submobile with Gordon and Scotty went over the side and came to rest at 700 feet. Scotty reported as Gordon turned on the sonoscope and requested additional depth. What's happening? Rick asked. We're taking a look. The bottom of the superstructure opened up like a sardine can. Wait. Take us down five feet. Five feet down, Rick called to his father, who was handling the winch. Still murky down here, Scotty's voice came up the phone line. Bottom is all stirred up. We're depending on the sonoscope. Stand by. The minutes ticked away, then Scotty's voice came again but it didn't sound like Scotty. He was breathless with excitement. There's two chests lying on the turret! Chada ran to tell Zircon. Rick held tight to the mouthpiece and waited. Far below, Gordon and Scotty were looking around, trying to locate other chests that might have fallen. Once they asked for more cable and brought the submobile to rest on the bottom. Only the two, Scotty reported. Getting them is going to be tough, though. Stand by. Minutes dragged by. Now and then, the whine of the generator indicated the use of power down below. Rick looked over the side into the green depths and started biting his nails. He wanted to open the circuit and demand information, but he knew he shouldn't disturb the work on the bottom. 
Okay, Scotty reported at last. We snared one chest with the salvage cable. We got a grip on it with the scope. Reel in the salvage cable while you bring us up, but be careful not to put too much tension on it. Rick relayed the orders to Hartson Brandt. The scientist shook his head. This is going to be tough. Chada, put the phones on and plug in the extension. You'll have to listen while you unclamp the cable. Rick, take over the salvage cable winch. Watch your footage meter. I'll read mine aloud. It's up to you to keep them together. Too much tension on yours will pull the chest loose. Too little will put its entire weight on the scoop. Keep on your toes. Rick took a grip on the handle that controlled the electric winch motor. Ready, he said. It was delicate work keeping the two cables coming at the same rate of speed. By the time the submobile broke the surface, Rick was limp. They brought the undersea craft up almost to the booms, then locked the winches and hurried to help with the boom ropes. The submobile was swung inboard, then they hurried back to the winches and lowered it to the deck. Clasped firmly in the jaws of the scoop, the salvage cable, tight around it, was a rusted steel chest. Gordon and Scotty dropped to the deck as Rick swung the hatch away. Then they all gathered around the chest. Zircon set a course for the open sea so that he need not watch the wheel and hurried back. The chest was released from the submobile and lowered to the deck. What's in it? Rick asked breathlessly. We'll soon find out, Gordon stated. He and Chada hurried below deck and came up with cold chisels and heavy hammers. In a moment, the deck rang with pounding as the rusted hinges were cut away. Now, Hartson Brandt said. He took a pinch bar and inserted it under the lid. He threw his weight on it and water poured out. The cover flew off. They bent over a mass of soggy, bleached paper. Rick looked at the others, his disappointment plain. Nothing, nothing but a lot of wet paper. Harson Brandt peeled off a thin sheet of the soggy stuff and held it to the light. Wet paper, really. This piece I have is an English ten-pound note, Rick. This is the paper money chest. But it is all spoiled, Chada declared. The experts won't think so, Gordon said solemnly. They'll go through the stuff with their special equipment, and they'll get the number and the amount and country off each bill. Their findings will be accepted at face value. Even Zircon's booming voice was hushed. It's impossible to make an estimate, but I wager that chest represents more than a million dollars. Rick stared at the soggy mass in disbelief. It had to be true if the scientist said it was, but it was hard to believe. I hope there's something that looks more like treasure in the other box, he declared. Gordon nodded. Yeah, because that other one is the last one we're going to get. Rick looked up in surprise. Aren't we going after the rest? I'm afraid not. The blast curled the steel down there like a sharp blade. We couldn't get close enough to plant more charges. We'll have to be content with the two. What are we waiting for? Chada asked eagerly. Why aren't we going down for the other now? Why not? Zircon echoed. Let's stow this one below decks and go after the other chest. Willing hands busied themselves with the details of the dive 
and the submobile was on its way to the bottom again within half an hour. This time Zircon and Chada were in the undersea craft. Rick was at the phones. His father was at the winch. And Scotty stood by the clamp cable with the aid of Otera. Gordon was at the wheel. You're at 700 feet, Rick told Chada at his father's signal. He looked past the winch toward little Quagara and noticed a drifting tree, green branches in the air. Take them down ten feet, he repeated as Chada phoned his directions. He turned and watched Scotty put on another clamp, securing the power line to the main cable. Suddenly he whirled. Something had just registered. That tree was moving against the swell. He started to jerk off the phones, then realized he shouldn't. Scotty, he yelled. That tree! Turk! Scotty's quick wits needed no detailed picture. He dropped the last clamp and jumped for his rifle. Another leap took him to the rail, and the rifle was already at his shoulder. Eight rounds of the clip went off like a machine gun as Scotty triggered. Rick, holding his position but straining to see, saw the foliage fly and smaller branches droop. Suddenly, three heads were bobbing in the water, heading back for little Quangara as fast as arms could pull them through the swell. Scotty slapped another clip into his rifle. He took careful aim this time. The rifle barked, and a spurt of water shot up not more than two inches from the nearest head. Scotty triggered again and again, the shots landing so close that water sometimes spurted into the faces of the swimmer. Not until they had reached the reef of the little island did he reload and put his rifle down. I didn't try to hit him, he said laughing. I just tried to make good citizens out of him. They won't be back for a while. Turk, Hashimo, and Sears, Rick said. Gosh, I almost didn't notice. Yes, but you did, Hartson Brandt said. That's the important thing. Good shooting, Scotty. They'll think twice about trying that again. They must have figured out we'd be too busy with the dive to notice. They figured right, too. It was just luck I saw them. He broke off suddenly as Chada phoned up. Right. Give them ten feet more, Dad. Ward and Scotty had taken the larger and more difficult chest first. The one that Zircon and Chada snared had two brass handles that gave purchase to the salvage cable. There was no difficulty in bringing it to the surface. In a short while, the hammers and chisels were at work again breaking the hinges from the chest. Chada broke the cover off and exposed a number of soggy boxes made of what had once been pressed board. He picked one up and it fell apart in his hands. The others gasped in unison as crimson fire flashed from the pebbles that fell to the deck. Rubies. A fortune in rubies. They were damaged somewhat, but the surfaces could be polished, restoring them to full luster. In silence, they opened another Asagi boxes and exposed a mound of golden rings from which diamonds sparkled. Before them lay the loot of the Indies, Singapore, and Hong Kong, valuables taken from prisoners and refugees, found in vaults, or stolen from private homes by the conquerors. The Spindrift party gazed in silence as Chada uncovered fortune after fortune in brooches, unset stones, uncut emeralds, pearls, and necklaces. It was Scotty who finally put into words what was in all their minds. Let the fish have the other chests. We got half the treasure in the whole world right here.
Chapter 20 Homeward Bound Scotty, Rick, and his sister Barbie were stretched out on the sand in front of the Lahua Hotel. Chada, who was determined to become the world's best swimmer if he drowned in the attempt, was making the water foam a few feet offshore. Barbie, a slim brown water sprite, after a month in the Hawaiian sun, remarked, That dragon you brought back is the ugliest thing I have ever seen. I don't see why Dr. Warren got so excited. Neither do I, Scotty agreed, but I wish we could have brought back the other one. It would have looked nice on the Spindrift boat landing. Salesmen would run a mile when they saw it. The dragon was a souvenir of their last days at Quangara. A few more days of diving at the temple had netted two dragons, almost three. Gordon thought there had been four originally, one at each corner of the temple. The first had been destroyed by Sears and Turk. The second was safely delivered to the Pacific Ethnographic Society. The third had slipped from the salvage cable and had fallen to the bottom. The fourth, that had been Chada's idea. They had taken that to Camp Spindrift, and Otera had made a speech to the unseen watchers. We are your friends, he declared in the Polynesian dialect of the island. All strangers who come to your island from now on must be treated as friends. See, we have returned your dragon god. The taboo is lifted. More of the temple frieze had been brought up and added to the pieces they already had. Dr. Warren, delighted beyond words, had already put his staff to work. It was rough going for a while, Rick said lazily, but I guess the expedition was worth it. You guess, Barbie said indignantly, after finding all that treasure? Her voice got wistful. I sort of wish you could have kept just one of those tiny little emeralds for me. I love emeralds. Wait until we get the spindrift share, Scotty smiled. We'll buy you a dozen of them. That won't be for a long while, Rick said. The treasure was an international problem. Since Dutch, French, English, Australian, Chinese, and American ports or persons had been robbed to accumulate it, it had been turned over to the Navy at Guam for safekeeping while the governments got together. But international salvage agreements ensured a good share for the scientific group. The Navy had been most cooperative. A destroyer had been sent for Turk and his gang, and the Guam base commander had found a way around the service regulations to lend the Spindrift party an officer and four sailors to see the trawlers safely back to Honolulu. Turk and the rest must be in the States by now, Rick said a little enviously. He was anxious to get back to Spindrift again. Must be, Scotty agreed. The Navy commander said he'd put them on a service plane under guard and turn them over to the federal authorities in San Francisco. There's a lot you've never told me, Barbie said resentfully. I can tell when you're holding out. What really happened, Rick? Oh, not much, Rick said carelessly. Turk Mullane tried to take over the ship and we wouldn't let him. Then we put him and his pals ashore so he wouldn't have any trouble with them. That's all. Oh, never mind. I'll get it out of you one of these days. You probably will, Rick agreed. You can wheedle the flowers off the wallpaper when you put your mind to it. But if Mom ever finds out, she'd never let us out of her sight again. Chada stood over them, dripping wet, and said, You want to know what happened, Bobby? Ask Chada. He tells all. Barbara sat up eagerly. Oh, will you? What happened, Chada? 
Chada looked around to make sure nobody was within hearing distance. He leaned close, and his voice got confidential. We were captured by cannibals. Barbie's eyes got round and horrified. No! Oh, yes, Chada said solemnly. And he's not all. His voice sank lower still. We were boiled and eaten with ketchup. Barbie's retaliation was swift. She grabbed Chada's ankles and pulled. The Hindu boy went over backwards and landed with his head in the foam. Rick and Scotty laughed as he came up spluttering. Mrs. Brandt came down the path and smiled down at them. Isn't it time you all started dressing? Be sure to wear your white suits, boys. Remember, this dinner is as much in your honor as anyone's. That's the trouble with being famous, Rick groaned. You always have to dress up for it. Your father got a letter, Mrs. Brandt said, from Julius Weiss. Rick sat upright. Honest? What did he say? He knew his mother wouldn't have mentioned it unless it was important. I think we'll be leaving for home shortly. He did mention something about a new experiment, Mrs. Brandt said. Where's Dad? Rick asked eagerly. In the cottage, Mrs. Brandt replied. Rick was on the seawall in one leap, Scotty beside him. Mom, do you remember anything about the experiment? What kind? Is it another expedition, or is it at home? Mrs. Brandt shook her head laughing. You'd better talk to your father, son. Rick and Scotty didn't even wait for her to finish. They were sprinting up the path as fast as they could run. The End We hope you've enjoyed this Uvila audio presentation of A Hundred Fathoms Under by John Plain. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. The Rick Brandt theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.